First Samuel chapter number five, I want to preach to you a message entitled hard hearts and heavy hands, hard hearts and heavy hands. You might have heard of an old story called the ransom of red chief. In this story, two men who were hoping to make some quick cash kidnapped a young boy whose name was Johnny Dorsett. They, they take him from his father, who's a very wealthy and prominent member of the community. His father's name was Ebenezer. The plan was simply to kidnap the kid of a rich man and then hold him for ransom and then hopefully get a, a, a quick payoff, get rich and do it all over again. So the two kidnappers did just that. They wrote, uh, they kidnapped Johnny and then they wrote Ebenezer a note demanding $250 cash for the return of his son, Johnny. They were confident that this plan would be an instant success. But after a few days spent with little Johnny, they realized it might not turn out very well. You see, Johnny had red hair, the story says. That's a problem. But second, he, he, he called himself Red Chief. He dreamed of being an Indian chief. So getting kidnapped was actually a time for him to sharpen his Indian warrior skills. He wasn't scared at all. The story says he was excited. He was curious and he was loud. Kind of like Home Alone, he began to play pranks on the two kidnappers. He would ask a million questions. He would never go to sleep. And after a few days of enduring little Johnny, the kidnappers received a return letter in the mail from Ebenezer, Johnny's dad. It read, I quote, gentlemen, I received your letter today by post in regards to the ransom of my son, Johnny. I think you're a little too high in your demands. I hereby make you a counter proposition, which I'm inclined to believe you'll accept. You bring Johnny home and pay me $250 in cash and I'll agree to take him off your hands. P.S. You better come at night because the neighbors think Johnny is lost and I couldn't be responsible for what they do to anybody who dare bring him back. <laughs> the kidnappers ended up paying Ebenezer $250 and they returned Johnny because he turned out to be a lot more trouble than they ever thought he would be. They got more than they bargained for. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you volunteered to watch somebody's kids just out of the goodness of your heart. 30 minutes later, you thought to yourself, what did I get myself into? Who's this red-haired? No, just kidding. The same dynamic is described in our text tonight. As you heard last week from Brother Tanner, the Philistines defeated Israel on the battlefield. And then they captured that sacred ark. Then they took that ark with them, placed it in their temple. And in doing so, we're going to learn they got a lot more than they bargained for. Read the first two verses of chapter 5 with me. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. I'm going to structure the message slightly different than, than I normally do. I'm going to just walk through the story and then I'm going to walk us back through the story by way of application. So I want you to study with me for a while. When the Philistines brought the ark of God back and set it beside their God, I want you to know that they weren't doing that so that they could acknowledge the true Yahweh as their God. They weren't doing that so that now they could, they could, 
They, they could live and enjoy the presence and power of God in their lives. No, no, they, they brought it back and placed it beside their God, Dagon. Dagon was, was the chief God that they primarily worshipped. He was known as the God of fertility. So that meant there was a lot of sexual impurity wrapped around the worship of this false God. It was absolutely wicked idolatry. And when they placed the Ark of God next to this statue called Dagon, they were actually fulfilling a tradition of taking the God of whatever nation they just defeated and placing it in a subordinate position to their chief God. It was just a practice of what they did. On this particular day, they didn't think anything about it. They put the Ark of God on the shelf beside Dagon and they went to bed like they had after many victorious battles. But then they wake up the next morning they go to the temple to perform their morning ritual of worshiping Dagon, and they notice that Dagon had fallen to the ground. Look at verse 3. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord, and they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Now, this should have been a pretty big deal because people don't just go and knock off Dagon onto the ground. Who has the audacity to do that if you're a Philistine? But it's as though they thought maybe the wind blew it over. Maybe it was just accidentally knocked down. It didn't dawn on them that Yahweh knocked their God down. So what did they do? They just picked it back up and put it right back in its place, which should have taught them something. It should have taught them, my God can't even pick himself up from off the floor. There's something wrong with this, but it never dawned on them that their God was inferior to the God. They just put it back. They went about their day, went to bed, waked up the next morning, woke up the next morning and, and, and went to fulfill their, their ritual of worshiping Dagon. And this time they didn't just notice he was on the ground. He was on the ground and his arms and his head was cut off, leaving him looking like the potato head with no limbs. You ever did that as a kid, man? I always used to just destroy those suckers. It was great. Look at verse number four. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, both the palms of his hand, were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. They, they should have been furious at this point. They should have been looking around, tent to tent, room to room, who chopped off the hands and the, the, the head of Dagon. But no. You know what they did next? Here's what they did. They just changed up how they worshipped him. They just adjusted a few things in their approach to worshiping Dagon. Look at verse 5. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any that came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. What does that mean? Here's what it means. They made a new ritual that when they worshiped Dagon, they would not step in the area that Dagon fell to the ground. All they did was just make a minor adjustment. It didn't dawn on them that not only could Dagon not pick up himself from the floor... But he couldn't defend himself either. He, he could just get chopped off like it was nothing. It was God. Hey, listen, here's what's happening. God is trying to reveal to them, I'm superior. I am the God of all gods. And I want you to follow this. He first displays his gentle hand, just nudges Dagon off the shelf. They pick him back up, put him into place. It doesn't get their attention. They're stubborn, hard-hearted. Don't acknowledge Yahweh's the true God. And so he, he, he exercises his firm hand 
and he cuts off the hands and the head of their God. And they just kind of just change their approach to worship. They don't repent. They don't acknowledge Yahweh as the true God. And so here's what has to happen in verse six. God has to exercise his heavy hand. Look at verse six. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds. Even Ashdod and the coast thereof. This is a crazy story. The Hebrew word for emerald literally means swelling. We would say that it was tumors. If you want to know the origin of these emeralds or these tumors, look over to chapter 6 and verse 4. Then said they, what shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden emeralds and five golden, what's the next word? So most scholars agree that because the narrator ties together mice and emeralds, that, that this would have been something like the bubonic plague, which was carried in coastal areas, which Ashdod was a coastal area, by rats. Now, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the bubonic plague and its victims, but they're horrific. Fingers decaying and turning black, terrible bumps that turn into these big tumors that would grow and cause unbearable pain in the lymph nodes and the groin area, uh, in the armpits, and eventually would kill them. So no doubt there, there was panic here. Everybody was quarantining. Sound familiar? Nobody was sending their kids to school. They didn't want them to catch the bubonic plague. The problem with this is it was carried by more than likely rats, so it was coming to them. They couldn't hide. At this point, you would think they would soften their hearts and repent and acknowledge always the true God because not only can Dagon, uh, not only was he unsuccessful at picking himself off the floor, he was unsuccessful at defending himself. Now he's unsuccessful at defending them. He can't protect them from the plague. But you know how they responded? They said, we're just going to get rid of God. So they ignored God. They just put Dagon back into place. And then they just adjusted their worship a little bit. And then they just said, we just got to get rid of God. Look at verse 7 and 8. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of God of Israel about thither. Poor Gath. Why Gath? I don't know exactly why most scholars would, would, would kind of imply that, that Gath was closer to the border of Israel, so they might have been in better standing with the God of Israel, making them immune from, from God's judgment or heavy hand upon them. So they just geographically and, and pragmatically, they thought this was the best choice, but they were sorely wrong. Because not only did the plague follow the ark to Gath, it got worse in Gath. Look at verse 9. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city watch with a very great destruction. And he smote them into the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. You want me to skip that last line? Or do you want me to exegete that sucker? Because I can exposit that all. No, just kidding. You get the idea, right? Yeah. My class in Synergy, Synergy class tells me all the time, I say, why are you guys quiet sometimes? They're like, Brother Tyler, you just make things awkward sometimes. I'm like, I thrive in the land of awkward, man. I don't even feel it's awkward when it's awkward. That's just terrible self-awareness. But anyway, I just made things awkward. So, Gas said, we got to get it out of here. I mean, this is painful. And you did notice, right, that it went from God's heavy hand to his destructive hand. So it's getting more severe 
And they say, we got, we're going to send it on to Ekron. At least Ekron is a little smarter than Gath. They're like, no, we don't want to try that. Get it out of here. But before it got out of there, the bubonic, bubonic plague got in there. And now they describe God's hand in verse number 11, not as a destructive hand, but as a deadly destructive hand. Look at verse number 11, uh, 10. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron and it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go again to his own place that it slay us not in our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emeralds and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So I want you to see so far, we've got the gentle hand of God. It just pushed over Dagon. And bless you. Then COVID, then, then we got, so we got the gentle hand of God pushes over Dagon. We got the firm hand of God that cuts off his limbs. We got the heavy hand of God that sends emeralds on the Philistines in Ashdod. And then we got the destructive hand of God that, that, that sends emeralds into the secret parts in Gath. And then we got the deadly hand of God that, that smites a bunch of people in Ekron. And now the ark comes full circle from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron and back in the, in, in, in the hands of the Philistines for seven months. And it appears now that, that the Philistines are going to make a good decision. It appears. Look at verse six or, or chapter six, verse one. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months and the Philistines called for the priest and the diviner saying, what shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. Anytime you ask counsel of the priest, it seems like you're on the right track. Like, tell us what we need to do to make this thing right. That's what it seemed like they were doing. And so look what the priest told them in verse three. Are you following me? And they said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty. All right. But in any wise, return them a trespass offering. Then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then said they, well, what shall be the trust offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden emeralds and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore, ye shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land. And ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. Watch here. Priest, what do we need to do? Well... You need to get one of them there tumors. And you need to make a golden, like, piece of artwork. You need to sculpt an emerald. And you throw it in the ark. You need to sculpt, like, a, a golden rat. Throw it there in the ark. Okay, we can do that. But don't miss a detail in verse 5. And you need to give glory to the God of Israel. It's not enough, Philistines, to get religious. You need to get right. You need to repent. What would the Philistines do? Verses 7 to 13 will tell us. We won't read it, but look. Here's what they do. They make themselves a new cart. We'll talk about it next week. They make themselves a new cart. They put the ark on top of that new cart. They throw the, the, the golden emeralds in there. They throw the golden mice in there. And they take that sucker to Beth Shemesh. To the people of God. They wipe their hands clean. But we, we read nowhere in 7 or 13 through 13 
that they stopped to give glory to the God of Israel. Here's what happened. They got religious, but they didn't repent. Don't get distracted. Watch. They got religious, but they didn't get right. And you would think from reading the narrative, you would think that it's as though the Philistines got away with it. You would think that God got so sick and tired of dealing with them that he saw, okay, at least they tried. At least they put it, they, they took time to like do this trespass offering, put it in the ark and send it to the people of God. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll let them get away with it this time. And you would think this, you would think that the hand of God left them. But it didn't. We don't read any further about the heavy hand or destructive hand or deadly hand being upon the, the Philistines. But here's the most severe hand that at this point laid onto their life. And it was this, the releasing hand of God. And that is the most severe judgment of God that one can experience. Not the gentle hand, not the firm hand, not the heavy hand, not the destructive hand, not the deadly hand, the releasing hand of God, where, where they spurned his offers of grace for so long and they hardened their hearts so many times that he released them to continue down the path of wickedness with no resistance and let them face the judgment of having their own way. Don't think the Philistines got away with it. No, no, here's the point, And I want you to catch this. We're going to go to some application. I want you to catch the overarching principle of this narrative. It is dealing with the relationship between our heart and God's hand. And here's what we learn. The heaviness of God's hand upon our life has everything to do with the hardness of our heart toward him. I'll say it this way. The more stubborn your heart grows, the more severe God's judgment becomes. That's what we're to learn. Now listen. By way of bridging into the application, I want you to understand the two audiences this is written for. The original audience would have been the exiled believers in Babylon. That's who the book of 1 Samuel is written to. You study it. It was written, hundreds, these exiled believers would have received this and read it for the first time hundreds of years after this happened. And could you imagine what they were thinking Whenever they read this about the Philistines, I imagine they were thinking while in exile, they were thinking this. How stupid can that group of people be? Their little statue fell on the ground and couldn't pick itself up. Their little statue couldn't defend itself. And they just kept trying to just get rid of God. How are they going to get rid of God until it finally dawned on them exile believers? Oh, we did the same thing. Thus we're in exile. We rejected the hand of God in our life when it was gentle. And so he had to get firm and he had to get heavy. And here we are, a generation of believers, a generation of Hebrew people in exile to the Babylonians because we did the same thing as the Philistines. That's audience number one. Audience number two, us. This is preserved for us as an example to us, as a warning to us. And we would be tempted to think and even just laugh off such stupidity by the Philistines. Because we would not, we would not put on our shelf a Dagon. Are you kidding me? We're in Sunday night church. The last thing on our minds is bowing down to a fertility God. Here's what I found. We have Dagons of our own making. And we also have hard hearts. 
And if you would track with me, I want to apply the same process in our lives. Because idolatry in our lives starts the same way it did for the Philistines. It starts by putting our God, Yahweh, in a subordinate position to our Dagon. No, 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 no. I, I'm not saying that, that you, you, you usher God completely out of your life. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not even saying that you put Yahweh God on the bottom shelf of your life. I'm saying we place him right beside Dagon. So it appears as though we still love God and it makes us feel less convicted about our faults, God. So we still come to church and we still serve and we're still faithful. We give tithes and offerings. But Dagon has crept into a place of, in our life of equal loyalty to God. And you might have said, no, 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 that's not necessarily placing God in a subordinate position, is it? And I would say this, any shared position is a subordinate position to God. He's a jealous God. He refuses to share you with anybody. He doesn't desire a spot on the shelf of your heart. He desires to occupy the throne of your heart. God will not be one of many gods in your life. He desires to be the one and only God in your life. And when that's not happening, here's what, we'll, here's what he'll do. He'll, he'll gently place his hand on that idol. He'll just nudge it off the shelf in an attempt to rearrange the Dagon in your heart. That gentle hand comes by way of a preached sermon, by way of a Bible study lesson on Sunday morning, by way of a morning devotion in your private Bible reading time, by way of a parent or a friend or a spiritual leader sending you a text and just gently revealing something to you that needs rearranged and adjusted in your life. But what do we do so often with the gentle nudge of God? We ignore it. We refuse it. We get defensive toward it. We deny it. We minimize it like the Philistines. We don't even realize it. That's God trying to get our attention in the first place. We sit through sermon after sermon after sermon thinking that it's for somebody else. And we don't realize that we've actually taken the first step of stubbornly hardening our heart. And that doesn't mean that we, we don't go to the altar. It doesn't even mean that we, we, we don't nod our head in agreement to the sermon or the friend or spiritual leader that speaks into our life. We might even tell them thank you, but we have no intention to rid ourselves of the Dagon in our life. So God gently nudges it off and we go to the altar and we pray and we go to work on Monday and we pick it up and we put it right back on the shelf. We get a text from a parent or a friend or a spiritual leader asking us to readjust our priorities and our passions and, and our lifestyle. And we say, you know what? You're probably right. And the next weekend, we just put Dagon right back on the shelf. So you know what God has to do? Because he loves us and won't compete with any other love in our life in that way, he lays his firm hand upon you. Not his gentle hand, he takes that idol and he shakes it up. He might not cut its hands and its head off, but he touches it to the point where you feel its deficiency. He cuts off that relationship that has meant more to you than he has. He, 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 he cripples your finances so you can no longer depend on your money more than him. He steals your energy and health for a time so you can no longer run to productivity and work to find your satisfaction. You see, this hand is a little firmer. It's a bit more obvious than just nudging Dagon off the shelf. But what do we do? We do what the Philistines did. We keep Dagon around. We just change how we worship him. We rearrange some things, but we keep hanging on to our little God. We might have lost one relationship. We just run to another. We may have lost a good paying job, but we still have our credit card. 
We may not be able to distract ourselves by, 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 by being a workaholic, but we can find a way to stay busy on the internet or any other coping mechanism that distracts us from our real problems. And so instead of repenting of Dagon, we find a new way to worship Dagon, which just is another way of hardening your heart. And that's when God's hand has to get even heavier. I'm talking about emeralds. Not literally. Figuratively, the heavy hand of God is something that stays with us for a while. It weighs us down. It afflicts us deeply. For instance, God's heavy hand in Jonah's life was a storm. God's heavy hand in the prodigal son's life was a famine. God's heavy hand in our life is a season of emptiness, a season of pain, a season of humiliation, a season of loss, a season of continued disappointment. And listen, friend, this is actually God's grace. He doesn't want to send his destructive hand or his deadly hand into your life. He didn't want to send the plague upon hundreds of children and men in Gath. He didn't want to send a deadly destruction upon the people in Ekron. He didn't want Jonah had to be swallowed by a well or the prodigal son had to be eating out of a pig pen. But neither one of them nor the Philistines repented. They remained stubborn. What did the Philistines do? They tried to put God in a box and ship him off. They tried to get rid of God from Ashdod to, 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 to Gath to Ekron. Here's the problem with that. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You can't get rid of him. If you're his child, he doesn't surround you. He's in you. You can try and go to a different church. You can try to stop coming to church altogether. You can try to stop hanging around with church people. You can try to close your Bible. You can try to, sl- try to slowly phase out of ministry and become detached to the work of God. You can try to be like Jonah and the prodigal son and ignore the storm and ignore the famine and run as far as God as you think is possible. But until you soften your heart, you will not get rid of God's heavy hand upon your life. And that's because he loves you, my friend. You'd be tempted to look at this nerve and say, what a mean God. And I would look at it and say, what a gracious God. He could have sent them Imarod from the start. But he just nudged their God. He just pushed them off the shelf. He gave them chance after chance, but they kept putting them back on the shelf. They adjusted how they worshipped him. They tried to get rid of him. Then they tried to get religious. I'll just send him an offering. I'll do him a favor. And God will lighten his hand off of my life. I see this all the time. Somebody that's been through the heavy hand of God in their life, a storm, a famine. So they try to get rid of God. They face the consequences of living their life independent of God. And they run back to church and they run back to God. And I'm telling you, I'm genuinely happy for that. I am excited about that. But here's the mistake they make. They try to get religious again. They try to do a favor so that God will do a favor back for them. Yet they remain stubbornly stooped in their idolatry. They remain secretly clutching to their false god, Dagon. They come to church because it makes them feel good and it clears their conscience and they can sleep better for a couple weeks, but they have no intention of slaying the false god out of their life. And if that happens long enough, and if that happens enough times, listen please, this is the warning, you will experience a point of no return with God where he lays his releasing hand upon you and turns you over to your own way, your own path, your own sin. Brother Tyler, how do you know that? Well, not just in the Philistines life, but you turn to the book of Romans chapter one and it puts it this way three times in that chapter for this cause, God gave them up. First of all, God gave them up to their vile affections. 
Secondly, God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Number three, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are convenient. Here's what happened. He stopped resisting their efforts to rebel. He released them to sin and sin more and sin more and experience the sin, the the, the pain of their sin and the consequence of their sin to the fullest. You think emeralds are bad? Let God release you. That's bad. Let God get so fed up of your stubbornness and your resisting his grace that he says, have your own way. You're not convicted any longer. You've quenched the spirit. You've put out the spirit's voice in your life. You haven't lost your salvation. Not at all. But at some point, God is going to say, I'll let a well swallow you. You're going to have to roll around in the pig pen. Have your own way. You will reap the harvest of your sin because the Bible says God will not be mocked. The warning for us is simple but serious. The more stubborn your heart grows, the more severe God's judgment becomes. Hard hearts lead to heavy hands. Maybe you find yourself tonight Kind of like the two guys that kidnapped little Johnny. You've taken a day gone into your life and it was much more than you bargained for because that's what idols do, don't they? They cost a lot and give very little in return. Don't be stubborn with God's gentle hand. In fact, if you're here listening to this sermon, then God is gently nudging you right now. That is his grace in your life. He drew you to this place tonight He enabled you to be here to hear this sermon on this night because of his gentle hand that's been laid upon you. Respond to that spirit with obedience and softness of heart. If he's having to speak to you through his firm hand, repent. Why? Or else you're going to force the heavy hand of God upon your life. Don't just rearrange Dagon in your life. Get him out of your life. If you're at the place where you just want to get rid of God, you have no idea what you're doing here. And it's like with every church service, you get more sick and tired of hearing about sin. And you're tempted just to put God in a box and ship him out. Remember that when you do that, you are inviting God's destructive, deadly, and even releasing hand into your life. The essence of the application is this. Get right with God right now. Right now. Because the more stubborn your heart grows, the more severe God's hand becomes. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 12 as we close? I believe Brother Tanner read this verse. I want to read one more than I think he read. But if you hear this and, and, and you're kind of inwardly brushing and... and, and And kind of standing off towards this because this just isn't the God you want to believe is your God. He doesn't do these kind of things. Well, let's go to the New Testament and have this principle reinforced and we'll have an invitation and go home. 
Look at verse number five. And ye, of chapter 12, by the way, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Look down to verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Here's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. If God's chastening you, if you're having the chastening hand of God, whether that's gentle or it's deadly or anything in between, then your response to that should not be get discouraged, doubt God loves you, or get stubborn. Don't faint. If you're feeling his hand on your life, it's because he loves you too much to let you go. And so what does the author tell us to do? He, he, he says, make path, make straight your paths. Get your life right. Get your life right. Are you going to fall out of the way? Doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. Does not mean that. You're forever secured and sealed by the Spirit of God. Somebody say amen to that. But I'm telling you, there is sweet fellowship with God that you are missing out on. If you are holding on to a Dagon in your life. I could go into a number of possibilities of what Dagon is, but I think the Holy Spirit has probably already told you. It could be something that doesn't appear to be evil, or it could be something that's straight up evil. But Dagon is anything that is on the shelf of your heart other than Yahweh. And don't stay stubborn. Get soft. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.